to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to incorporate computational thinking into all content areas. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is George Valenzuela of Lifelong Learning Defined in Virginia. To start off, I wanted to say a big thank you to all of the listeners who have been rating and reviewing on platforms like iTunes and Spotify. As you may know, Lesson Impossible is not monetized, so the fuel for small podcasters like me are the five-star ratings and lovely reviews, like the most recent from Susan B7, who wrote that, the guests are really interesting, and there is much wisdom to be gleaned. Thanks, Susan B7, and I can assure you that this episode's guest, George Valenzuela, is definitely interesting. And there is much wisdom to be gleaned from his unique perspective on incorporating robotics, STEM, and computational thinking into all classrooms. Ahead of our interview, George sent me a bunch of information about himself and his work, as well as a chapter of his book, Rev Up Robotics, Real-World Computational Thinking in the K-8 Classroom, all of which I've included in the show notes, along with links to a transcript of this episode, as well as various resources we mentioned throughout. George and I spoke over Zencaster in early May. First of all, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to me and talk to the listeners. I really appreciate it. I also really appreciate you sending me all that stuff ahead of time. It was it was helpful getting to know you and figuring out the angle that I wanted to take for the interview. I have to admit, I I was really impressed but didn't understand a lot of it when it came to the computational thinking. So I definitely have some questions for you if you don't mind. But I thought we could just start off with uh, you just introducing yourself, who you are, where you're at, what you do. Hey, Aviva. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Well, I have 16 years of experience as both a classroom and online teacher as a district as a district administrator, and now as an education coach, author, and advocate. And in my current context, I am an online teacher at Old Dominion University in Virginia. And I am the lead um, coach at Lifelong Learning Defined. And in that role, I travel all over our country to coach educators at all levels in STEM, in computer science, PBL, robotics, restorative practices, emotional intelligence, and lesson planning. And for this purpose, Aviva, I have been to over 25 states and over 70 cities in our country. And now I also coach virtually. I am the author of Rev Up Robotics through ISTE, the International Society for Technology Education, and I am an avid blogger and writer, and I contribute to several organizations like PBL Works, Edutopia, the Teach Better team, and ISTE. And part of my work is to advocate for ad tech and effective teacher preparation in the United States. And so how did you find yourself in the position that you're in today? What was your path to to here? Okay, so my path to teaching was definitely not conventional. And so my undergrad was in business information technology, which led to a teaching endorsement in computer science. But my original plan did not include teaching. But my dearest auntie, who was a teacher, 
and who sadly, Aviva, passed away about four years ago, told me I would make a really great teacher. Well, I didn't agree with her at first, but I eventually, I took her advice and loved it. I taught middle school for about seven years and then became a district instructional specialist in Virginia. And I did that for nine years. Then in 2017, I began working on my writing full time and I went into business as an education coach. And so here I am now. Taking a look at the sample chapter that you sent me, like I, I feel like I have a good idea what robotics is because not only have I seen science fiction, but I've seen a robot or two. Um, my husband is an engineer, so I feel I know a little bit about engineering and STEM, but the computational thinking really kind of threw me for a loop. And I was wondering if you could define it a little bit more. Yeah. So what computational thinking is, is a problem solving skill that involves four different elements and mindsets. Number one is the composition. Number two is abstraction. Three is pattern recognition. And four is algorithm design. And so I recommend starting computer science here because what computational thinking is, it's foundational for problem solving and computing. And it's basically thinking like a computer. And so when we think about teaching computational thinking, we should think of it as being infused into what we already teach and for having students use this way of thinking to solve problems in our subject areas. So could you maybe walk me through, I am a French teacher, how would I start adding computational thinking into my lessons? Okay, so let's say if I want to um, use algorithms, well, an algorithm is a well-defined procedure, a process, or a set of rules to be followed. And we don't only design algorithms in computer science when coding or designing a frank, a network. I can do that in math if I'm doing long division or reducing fractions. So in the same way, I can do that in my French class when I'm creating a procedure or the steps of doing something. It's just a mindset and a way of thinking. So my, my algorithms are my verb conjugations then, is what you're saying. I don't know about French, but I would say, yeah, it's basically, it's having um, the kids think like a computer, okay, and make steps logical steps, and then applying that same skill in any of the content areas. And all that does is really create awareness and a way to logically solve problems. Okay. So for instance, in the past, I've created flowcharts for my students when we're looking at choosing different verb conjugations or which verb to use that in its own way would be a computational thinking skill. So I could get the students to make those flow charts and I would be encouraging that type of thinking. Exactly. And that's exactly what I do in my class. So I'm a computer science teacher, obviously. So when I'm teaching my kids how to program and how to code, I don't teach them that first. I first show them how to create a problem and then a solution and then make a flow chart. And so they understand inputs um, outputs, loops, functions, and and what variables are, and then that that algorithm, then it becomes um, code. I also like that idea of putting, especially for younger students, putting on your computer hat. You know, oftentimes I'll have kids put on imaginary hats, like you put on your historian hat, or you know, put on your thinking or writing hat. And I like the idea of changing it up and putting on your computer hat. 
Yeah. And so the whole point here is to lift up the problem solving skills and mindsets that our kids need and then provide them a tangible process, which are the four elements or mindsets. I I know, and I have to admit that I have been part of this grumbling in the past where there's this feeling that STEM is becoming that buzzword, is becoming the golden child of the moment, and the value of the humanities and sort of the, the softer subjects is being devalued in place of STEM. Do you see that happening or are you seeing it in a more optimistic light? Like what's your perspective on this? Um, I can definitely see why someone would say that. So it's a double-edged sword for me, right? Because on one hand, I promote STEM education. But on, but on the other hand, I can see why if I wasn't you know, trained this way, why um, I would want to hold on um, um, to what I'm teaching. And so the best thing I can say to teachers is this, is that if you start to put this into your lesson plans, it will help your learners learn to think more logically and also understand how the creation of of the tech that they use on a daily basis actually takes place. And I think that that's really important for everyone to understand, not just the kids, also the teachers. There's a stat from the BLS that states that 67% of all new STEM jobs are in computing. So I think it's only right that it's integrated into what we already teach. And so right now, you know, all states have adopted policy for this. I tell my schools, do one project that's STEM-based once a semester. Don't do more than that. And so what I do in my book in part two, which I will be sending you, Aviva, is for each of the content areas, I have have, um, dedicated the chapter for ELA, math, science, social studies. And I made sure that the standards-based skills that can be applied in robotics, in STEM, are the ones that I have lifted out. And so I explained it from the point of view of the content area, and I, and I, you know, honored that area, and I provided an exemplar lesson that they can easily use. And also, I put um, resources for, for a ton of free curriculum. And so I just think that it's something that our kids need because of the workforce needs. It helps them think logically. And I think that our educators, if they do just one project a semester, and it could be a week, it could be um, on two weeks, what that will do is, number one, not make an engineer or a computer scientist, but it will promote awareness you know, of what's happening in the real world and how things are designed in the real world. And so if a student finds a passion for that, then he or she can spend three hours every night becoming an expert. So, you know, I think that that is what I would say is just help our kids become aware. Cool. And so in using that in your own practice, what would you say is like a unit or a lesson that you are the most proud of? The most proud of. So let me think. Well, I came to realize a few years ago that as a classroom teacher, which was over 12 years ago, I was a great supervisor of children but not necessarily a good teacher. 
So I didn't quite know my educational philosophy then. And for me, that really took time. And unfortunately, life is only understood backwards, but you have to live it forwards. And so about a year ago, I was offered the opportunity to teach a Saturday computer science class to middle schoolers at the Math Science Innovation Center in Richmond, Virginia. And there I taught a project called the Computational Thinkers Project. And it's in my book, actually. And that's where I taught kids about problem solving like a computer and then applying those same skills to um, game-based coding and then having them teach it to others. And I was very proud of the fact that I was able to engage kids in experiential learning the same way I do adults and that it worked. And all our stakeholders, even they came out and saw the final product. And my kids did some amazing, amazing presentations. It was caught on video. And I was definitely very proud of that. And you mentioned this idea that you needed to know your personal philosophy to be a good teacher. How would you define that philosophy now with the benefit of hindsight? Mm. (laughs) So I'm a constructive teacher. And before beginning my doctoral work, I always knew that my approach to both instructional design and teaching is packed with constructivist elements, as I believe that learners learn best by doing and also with reflection from metacognition. However, I was unaware of the learning theories that make up constructivism or how they inform the um, theoretical frameworks in the instructional planning methods and the strategies I was using. But since doctoral students are required to produce knowledge, I eventually began to understand what those learning theories are and how they anchor both instructional design and several of the research studies that impacted my work. And so I came to realize that my previous understanding when I was in the classroom was only based on years of practice and repetition. And although through that, I eventually became a really good lesson planner and a facilitator because I always use evidence-based instructional strategies and educational protocols, I could not explain to others why my strategies were right. I just knew that they work. But since elements of, of constructivism inform the theory for many, if not most, of the popular instructional strategies, instructional planning approaches, and scripted lesson plans in schools, I now believe that you know every practitioner, and myself included, needs to understand the why and how such practices help kids learn and should actively pursue ways of improving their own teaching practice as a lifelong process. I think all teachers can say that there has been really amazing professional development practices that they've been involved in, and then there have been the professional development workshops where you just end up with a notebook full of doodles. What would you say then, I mean, obviously, booking you is going to be the best, but what do you think is really the best type of professional development that teachers can do to understand those philosophies as you describe them? I would have to say, um, you know, being unselfish, um, it would have to be project-based learning. And that's because it's an all-inclusive practice that anyone can use in their classroom. And I first heard of PBL in 2013, but did not get formally involved until 2014. Around that time, I joined Buck Institute for Education, now known as PBL Works, as a national faculty and Aviva after coaching educators in PBL for over five years now. I know that it works 
and provides educators in every instructional area systematic approaches to both planning projects and also how they should teach those projects. Now, I'm not saying that everything has to be PBL, but it's really a great way to help educators learn how to teach. A few years ago, when I learned it, I learned it through evidence-based instructional strategies and vetted educational protocols. It's like having little recipes for everything we need to do in our classrooms. And PBL also really connects initiatives in schools like equity, restorative practices, social emotional learning, STEM, and computer science, as well as what we need to do in classrooms like build culture, lesson planning, assessment, scaffolding, real world learning, um, teamwork. And so I'd say PBL is a great instructional approach that either a school or a team of teachers can use to help them bridge their content and create really common practice. What's a really cool thing coming out of PBL is now that a lot of teachers have really engaged and kind of mastered it, is there's all these different offshoots as well. Like I I interviewed someone recently, James Fester, who is doing project-based learning, but calling it park-based learning. And it's all about projects in national parks. Do you know of other kind of really niche PBL that has been emerging from the movement? I'm not sure about those, but I do know James and we are actually working on a book proposal together. Oh, cool. And so I'll be working with him, but I'm not sure, but I know that it's really becoming the, the you know, go-to instructional approach for school redesign in our country. And so I think that it's very powerful because it's based on practices that help kids learn and then reflect. In your professional life now or in the past, what are things that you've had the most success at and what are some things that you struggled with the most? So my success would be in my writing. And so um, if we can talk about writing for one moment, um, in the past five years, I have seen a lot of success in my writing and I am now a published author, a published researcher, and I frequently contribute to books, um, academic journals, how-to blogs, and magazines. But Aviva, I didn't start out that way. I actually, I wasn't that good at first, but I slowly improved using three major steps, which I would like to share as advice for um, other writers or for aspiring authors, if that's okay. Absolutely. So number one, write about something you're really good at and explain it in actionable steps. Meaning another educator should be able to follow your blog and replicate both your process and success. Very similar to a chapter four in a dissertation. Number two, have a mentor. And if you can't find one, model the success of a writer that you really like. For me, that was Andrew Miller very early on. And Andrew is a very prolific writer, and he's also one of the most talented educators I have ever seen, met, heard, or read. So my advice is to find someone as a mentor or source of inspiration. And number three, put the time in to get better each day. Practice will not make you perfect, but it will make you better. So I like to put in about 90 minutes a day just to write. Now, Aviva, it doesn't seem like a whole lot. But 90 minutes a day after a week totals up to about 10 hours. 
After a month, about 40 hours. And after a year, a total of 480 hours, which is equivalent to 20 days. And so that is one success. And I have struggled in many areas, but the one area that I really struggled with the most is emotional intelligence. And at one time, Aviva, I didn't even know it. Lacking emotional intelligence stunted my growth in several key areas of my work and also my personal life. And there was a time when this would cause me to overshare with colleagues. (laughs) (laughs) So it happened when I worked in a school division. And at the time, I took a very deep dive into STEM, into computer science, and into PBL. And every time, Aviva, I learned something new. I would get very overly excited, like a kid with a new toy, and I would run into my colleagues' offices and overshare like crazy, like a madman. But luckily, I read the book Emotional Intelligence 2.0 by Travis Bradbury and Gene Greaves. And this caused me to learn how my messages are being received by others and also learn how to hang back and let my work speak for itself instead. I know that there's been a lot of work about the gender divide in STEM fields and how that perception that STEM is for boys and not for girls is, you know, seated very early. Unfortunately, I I talked to a, a middle school teacher who teaches science and she was saying, you know, she's got 12 and 13 year olds who are already pretty sure that girls don't do this. How is the STEM education field working on trying to make it a more inclusive environment so that girls can see themselves as computer programmers just as much as the boys can? Well, I think that, you know, the ESSA Act, you know, has really, um, you know, brought out equity. Um, and the ESSA Act the is... Yeah, the ESSA Act, Every Student Succeeds Act, it, it, it replaced um, No Child Left Behind in the previous administration. Um, Secretary of Education back then, um, Arnie Duncan, um, I think it was his project. And so the ESSA Act um, is where schools started to, you know, think about educational equity. And so obviously equity is a big deal now. And so how educational equity is defined by the Center for Public Education is that every student receives what he or she needs in order to be successful. And so I think that the most equitable school systems in regards to STEM and to computer science is that they is that they integrated in not just by having one class, but really in in developing pathways in in the secondary grades. And so I think that if teachers in K through eight, if they lift it up, if they introduce it and it's done in a way that that um, it doesn't intimidate learners and they understand what the basics are. And so when it's done that way, but then in the school system, they have pathways to health and medical, which is them, to um, engineering, um, to um, IT, right? So what helps them is see that there's so many ways of doing STEM and so many avenues. And so they don't have to only pick one, but they can just see, you know, learn about it, and then make a choice. And what are some innovations that you've perhaps put to the side or you've decided, you know what, just not the world or I am just not ready for it at all? Well, that's a good question. And 
I can't say that there's a specific innovation that I won't try. But the one thing I will not do, Aviva, is jump on buzzword bandwagons. I just <laughs> don't respect that. I don't respect that. When people do that, it's so obvious that they don't understand the guiding principles for the use of a tool or a strategy. And you can also tell if they're not being authentic in their work. And so being true to self and also others, I think is crucial in our profession. And there's a quote that I live by for this. You can cram for an exam, but a farmer can't cram for the harvest. And so I'll say that one more time. You can cram for an exam, but a farmer can't cram for the harvest. And that's because growth and development take time and patience. So what I recommend people do is always is to take 30 minutes a day for improving our teaching. So what does that mean, right? As a teacher, that will always involve learning to improve two major things. Number one, planning and designing lessons. And number two, learning how to teach those lessons. And I think that's really key to knowing and owning our stuff. I know you've got a lot of different fingers and a lot of different really cool pies. Um, but what would you say, you, you mentioned that book proposal. What are some things that you're looking towards in the future that you're really excited about? And just improving my practice. Um, you know, being a confident um, teacher takes time. And so I have found that the more that I put myself or I was put into situations where I had to learn something new. When I over, overcame that thing, I became more, more unconfident. And so after a few years of, you know, doing this stuff and really putting some nice things under my belt, I just look forward to whatever um, um, the need is in education and becoming an educator that can work with others to help fill that need. Then my last and favorite question to ask is you have unlimited school funds, full control, as much time as you need. What would be your ideal classroom, school, or curriculum? Whoa, that's a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay, so let me think. I think if we focus on one classroom, that wouldn't be ideal, especially since one classroom is always in one school and one school is always in one district. And in schools, our teachers are siloed for the most part, but the kids aren't. And in districts, schools are feeders into each other. And so I believe that implementations need to be systemic if they're going to be effective. So for this question, I think I will focus on every school in our country. If I was in charge, yeah, if I was in charge, I would change how teachers are trained in the United States. And although I do agree that that teaching is an art, meaning it's how you deliver instruction, and for every person that's personal, it's also a science. And I believe that every educator needs to understand several, if not all, facets of that science, especially the learning theories that inform how they plan their lessons and also how they teach those lessons. And so really good PD for all those classrooms should do one or both of two things. Number one, it should grow your curriculum. Or number two, enhance your teaching practice. And I think that's important, very important. Awesome. Well, 
thank you so much for taking the time to to share the knowledge that you've gained. I, I really appreciate it. And it's definitely made me rethink the ways that I've siloed my own classrooms and just how I could incorporate these aspects of computational thinking in a way that didn't feel as threatening as I would have originally thought it would be. So I really appreciate that. You are really doing great work and you're amplifying voices of, of people that, you know, are doing good work, but may not necessarily be known. And from the standpoint of practice. And so I appreciate that. So there you have it, George Valenzuela on the value of adding computational thinking to any discipline, how teaching philosophies evolve over time, and why it's important that your enthusiasm doesn't overwhelm your colleagues. If you want to find out more about what innovative educators are doing around the world, go to LessonImpossible.com. And if you like the podcast, please consider forwarding it to your colleagues and rating and reviewing it on iTunes. This has been Lesson Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin.